get let's take a moment and say thank you to our sponsors at Fuji Sport. Yeah, absolutely. They've been working with us for for a very long time, not only on this podcast but also at the academy. Um, and I'm peeking, taking a peek at, at their website right now, and they have a brand new ultra light gi. Now this is mind blowing. I'm looking at my size A2 is 2.75 pounds. I mean that's under three pounds. That's yeah. that's mind blowing. I could even lift that. And uh, go to their website FujiSports.com. Check it out. Anything you could need for your jujitsu journey, you can find at FujiSports.com. Hey, it's been a while since we started Roll TV Project. Uh, it's been a while since you started it. I did come in later, and um, I can't say enough about it, especially the new platform. It's really amazing, fully customizable, uh, and you know a little bit more about the structure. Well, so two things you need to know. One is the subscription service, which is 9 bucks a month. Um, you can get access to hundreds of videos, hundreds of drills, techniques, and so on in a very nice labor, library categorized as you need them. But two different lessons. Um, you can actually purchase those individually and you own them. So the subscription is not tied to it at all. You can look at things like spider guard, half guard sweeps, half guard chokes, um, uh, folding pass, and so on. There's so many of them out there. So take a look um, and see where you need help with the videos, right? 30% if you type in Roll Radio as a code, who doesn't like saving money, go to RollAcademy.tv. What's up, everyone, and welcome back. If you haven't already, please remember to hit the like, share, subscribe, download, listen, and whatever other button there is, and leave us a review wherever you do listen. That ensures that we can continue bringing you the great guests and amazing content that you have come to expect. Whether he is teaching at Gracie University, instructing the military or police, or sharing his knowledge in a Gracie breakdown, Hiran Gracie always does it with passion and enthusiasm second to none. And today, we are lucky enough to have him as our guest. Listen as Hiran shares fantastic stories from the early days of UFC, life lessons with his grandfather, Grandmaster Helio, why police officers should train, the importance of living in the moment, and why we should always keep it playful. Here is the Roll Radio with one of the most influential people in jiu-jitsu, Hiran Gracie. Welcome to Raw Radio. And we are live. Here Gary, we how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Typically, we would have, uh, you know, a, a more, more of a funny engagement at the right. beginning of the show, but today I think this considering the circumstances of the events that took place earlier this week, um, Leandro Lowe, I mean, huge tragedy um, in Brazil. I'm sure everybody by now knows what happened and, and, and you know, the big great loss that, that jiu-jitsu community took on, you know, this week. Let, let's, there's something great that BJJ Fanatic is doing, and I, yeah. I do want to bring that up. So go ahead. Yeah, I have the website up now. It's uh, pages.donately.com. Um, they have a fundraiser. Let me refresh this page. They're going for a hundred thousand. They're already um, a quarter of the way there, and uh, this is going to be donated to the family. Um, so it'll be in the show notes. Definitely check that out uh, and donate if you can. Every little bit helps. Um, the page uh, will be on. The link will be on our page uh, and in the show notes. So definitely uh, click on that and do whatever you can. Yeah, I'm great loss. Great loss. Unique episodes. I'm, I'm, yes. uh, you know, changing, Very lucky ch today. changing pivots here, and you know, uh, here on Gracie, 
Well, sir, how are you, sir? Good morning. Welcome to the show. Um, I, I really appreciate your time. We had your father recently. Recent, not so recent, it actually. It's been, it's, it's, been, it's, been, it's, been, yeah. it's been some time. I'm so glad that you were able to join us. How are you today? I'm doing amazing. Thank you. It's great talking to you guys. Great to be here. One of the unique things about you and your family that you guys really, you know, are considered the anchors of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, especially here in the United States, particularly referring to UFC. I'm wondering, do you have recollection of UFC 1? Yes. I think I was 12, 13 years old, so I remember it very clearly. Yes. Give us give us a little behind the scenes. Like what what was what was happening in your head? within the family as the event is approaching? As the event is approaching, um, I can remember, you know, seeing photos and kind of like bios of the fighters kind of posted up on the wall at what was called WOW Promotions. So my father and Art Davey, who are the creators, they had a little building kind of nearby the Gracie Academy back then. And I remember as a kid, I would go there. It was, a, it was a much different feel compared to the Gracie Academy where it was just everybody rolling and jujitsu, jujitsu, jujitsu. This small building, you know, a block or two away, I would walk over there and it was, it was, it was a production. They were getting ready for the big show. And I remember um, walking and looking at the wall or maybe it was on a desk. And I remember Art Davey, really excited about look at this fighter we got you know so and so and this guy is this guy and we got taylor tooley and he would show me the the different stats whether it would be the weight of the of the of the different fighters or what their specialists in and their pictures and back then the, the martial artist pictures they were always like every, every photo was like a like a cover of like a, a black belt magazine cover that's <laughs> <laughs> what they sent in to show them themselves it wasn't just them smiling to the camera right. it was like it was, kinda... it was a tough picture yeah and <laughs> <laughs> their best karate pose <laughs> yes so i loved seeing that at 12 13 years old and and I don't remember ever feeling any big feelings like nervous for Hoist or even really excited because at 12 years old, if it's not happening right then and right there, you're not too worried about it. So, you know, uh, maybe it could have been weeks later or a month later. I remember actually being at the UFC. Now, all of a sudden, things changed. Now, you know, because it's in that moment and you know that your uncle is in the locker room in the back and they're warming up and I wasn't watching it. I was out in the octagon or right near the octagon. And after fights would happen, my father thought it would be a great idea to have myself and my cousin Hawksong clean the mats, to clean the blood off the mats. And some fights were very, very bloody and some were not bloody at all, not that bloody. So we would run out there as little kids, 12, 13, and we would have some towels and we had little latex gloves on and we would clean the blood. And the funny part is that the blood it was a canvas. So the blood would like kind of seep right into the canvas so quickly. So I always felt like it didn't have much of a purpose, our cleaning, but maybe it gave the illusion that the mat was clean and ready for the next fight. Who knows? But that didn't last for too long because lots of parents complained about these two kids running in and wiping up blood. And how could they think of having kids do this job? Little do they know that the kids were the children of the creators and the promoters, but 
it wasn't, it didn't go well with the parents. So I lost my job. <laughs> <laughs> you got fired by default. But yeah, it wasn't your fault. But listen, it's, uh, you're talking about something important at 12, 13 years old, right? We like kind of live in that moment of life and the perception of what is really happening around us is not the same. Do you realize at that point of time, do you realize the magnitude of what is happening? Or you kind of just coexist in this fam family dynamic of this new thing getting created? How, how is that unfolding in your head? No, I don't think that I understood the magnitude of what was happening and where it was going. I don't think anybody could, maybe my father, if anybody had an idea, had a vision with my father, for sure. For me, it was just one fight at a time. And I remember like maybe the second or third UFC, I started to you know, walk out with Hoist in mm -hmm. the train. And I remember once I was backstage with Hoist and not like I was his main training partner. He had all his brothers and cousins and friends training him. I'm just hanging out in the energy. Once I started to kind of be backstage, then I remember feeling a lot more invested. Like I'm going out there and fighting because I was right by his side right before he fought. Um, and at that point, I started to really when he started to win in UFC two and he fought chemo, I believe in UFC three at that time, I started realizing how much the Gracie family hoist hoist, especially, and just jujitsu was against the world and not in a negative way, but in a way of like really trying to put jujitsu on the map. Like it's, we're here to show you that this is the art. So I remember being a lot more emotionally connected to the outcomes. Like when Hoist would win the fights in the second and the third UFC, the fourth UFC, when he fought Ken Shamrock in UFC five, I remember being so much more emotional. Like this is, we got to do this. <laughs> and here I am again, 14 years old, 15. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so in terms of the magnitude, I had no idea the magnitude of the situation, but only a couple years later into my, you know, late teens, did I realize how significant those fights were and how many people started jujitsu, whether it be professional fighters or everyday people or service members, people just, you know, we got to learn this stuff. So at that point, I realized like, wow, Hoist, you know, the UFC his display of jujitsu that really sent a message around the world. And that is that you don't have to, that you can defend yourself, that you can defeat a much bigger, stronger, heavier, more athletic opponent if you have technique. And I always heard this script from my father, from my grandfather. I always heard these things, but watching him do it and it being on television and it being this big event almost made it more real for me because as a kid at 10 years old, my grandfather would tell me stories about how the, the things that he did and discuss his fights. But even still, you know, I didn't see him fight the guy who outweighed him by a hundred pounds. So it didn't land the same. It did for when I watched Hoist do it. So would you say that the, the, the UFC and the watching Hoist was like the first tangible event that you could really witness and, and almost touch, be there in person that had that emotional impact on you? Yeah, I would say so. Even though there was small, there's challenge matches that happened mm -hmm. inside the Gracie Academy. Martial artists from around would come and fight whether it be my father, my uncle, not my father so much, even though he did some, I don't remember being at those, but different uncles and instructors, because they were fighting in the Gracie Academy, 
it was less, it was almost like they're just training. That's normal. That's what we live around. Whereas when you put them on an arena, then there's like, okay, now people are cheering against Hoist and some are cheering for him and they want him to get hurt. So yes, I think that was the moment where I got like, I, I probably truly became team jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember watching, you know, one of the events and, 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 and the Gracie train coming out of the locker room. And I do recall having these thoughts to myself, like, oh my God, they're still coming and they are still coming. And there's so many people, oh my God, they are still coming. <laughs> when is this thing going to end? How many people were there? Like, do you have the recollection of, 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 I mean, it, I would, yeah, I would say there was probably eight people. Not too many, but when you want to see the main guy, when you want to see right. the fighter, yeah, it's almost like every person that's not the fighter, it's like, get out of the way. Yeah. The yeah. Way. With, <laughs> with a slight curiosity of what are they doing and who's in there maybe, but you kind of want to get to business, but you know, that's just, I guess that's the thing, right? When you have a, a little entourage, a little team, they've been there for you and they're, they're your, they're your team. So you bring them on with you. You actually need them by your corner. That's the whole point of the corner. I don't think that I was needed in the corner. I think it was very much Hoist's way and my father's way of, you know, bringing me into what the family does. But there's no doubt that the people that were in Hoist's corner, the people that were in the train, um, everybody contributed so much to him, as do all the other cornermen in other fighters' corners these days. And some even say that corner is as important as the fighter itself. That's the the foundation. That's the core of what the fighter will perform and how they will perform, especially from the mental and psychological perspective. That support is, is huge. Huge um, support. Do you remember who came up with the idea of the train? I don't remember, no, but I, I, I feel like it might have been a kind of a last minute thing. I don't remember. I feel like it might have been like, let's just do this maybe an hour before or, um, but I have no idea who came up with the idea. What was the energy like in the locker room? Man, I, you know, my, me remembering the locker room for UFC uh, two or three is not quite the same as remembering the locker room for Hoist versus, you know, Sakuraba. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the energy is, the energy is very peaceful. And the energy is, of course, there's a time to, you know, begin to kind of intensify in terms of getting really warmed up and getting the blood moving so that when you get out there, you're already kind of in the mode, but overall it's, it's a very quiet locker room. If there's one thing I remember as a kid is almost like just stay in your lane and just be quiet and observe, you know, do what you're asked, but until then just kind of stand by. So that was my experience. And, you know, I'm, I was, I always prided myself in being very quick, to if something was needed, like go get ice. I can like boom very fast to get ice, you know, down the around the corner and bring it back. So I, I I'm happy to be that person to run and do the things that nobody else wants to do, but also the the thing that needs to be done. And I'm not doing anything else, so I'm I'm very much that kind of almost like the water boy. Even though I don't remember getting water ever. <laughs> so that was the energy, quiet, and we'll let you know when we need you. But until then, just hang out unquestionably that event or those events, the set of those events created a path of what we experience today. And a moment ago, you even said yourself, you know, the impact that 
your father and everybody involved in that organization at that time and the events itself gave millions of people the opportunity to not only learn what jiu-jitsu is but also turn that into their lifestyle at this point yes do you think do you see the impact that one person let's just narrow this down to your dad for a moment that one person had on millions i mean millions at this point of time around the world is that is that heavy on your mind is that is that do you feel the responsibility of that I, I don't know about responsibility. I feel, um, I guess, an opportunity okay. to continue to share that which, you know, my grandfather, my father, so many uncles and cousins, you know, have always put so much energy into sharing. And, and that is just teaching and sharing jujitsu. Um, as far as, you know, kind of understanding the magnitude of what was done and my father and his team there might no doubt as growing up as kids, our father always kind of reminded us as to the significance of what he did very much. Like look, he would, he would, we would travel, let's say, and we'd see a jujitsu school somewhere and it's a Brazilian jujitsu school. And it has, it could be, it could have pictures or just an energy that kind of came from Brazil. And he just reminded us always how, look how many opportunities have come from, the explosion of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu thanks to the UFC, thanks to our family. So I'm very honored to be part of the family and now very, I guess, excited and grateful at the opportunity to be able to continue to share that which, you know, Hoist displayed in the UFCs. Yeah. Was this path of yours, was it uh, natural or did you, did, were, did you make a decision at some point like this? I'm going to continue this on or did it just kind of happen naturally and you just kept finding yourself um, further and further along? Yeah, I don't, the, the idea of it happening, happening natural. I, I don't feel that way. I feel like, you know, as kids, you kind of grow up and you, you kind of do, you eat, you say, you do, you wear whatever your parents are doing. Mm -hmm. Now, some kids obviously go in the opposite direction and they rebel, but I got, friends of mine who give their children, you know, Laker jerseys and the kid is a year old and he's wearing the Laker jersey. So for me, you know, the fact that I'm doing jujitsu to the degree that I am right now, it has a lot to do with the fact that th there was no other option mm -hmm. and everybody might have different, different opinions on this, but I feel like, man, it's how I was, my approval came from me doing jujitsu, my approval of my father and my uncles came from how much I trained, how hard I trained, you know, how many private classes I taught at 16, 17, 18 years old, how much work I did around the Gracie Academy, my approval. And in many ways, they like, almost like love. It's almost like when you do things in the direction of the family's, you know, legacy, you, you get a little more love. Mm -hmm. And so did I choose that? Or was I just, in many ways, I was just trying to survive and be enough. And that's not an uncommon thing where in relationships, you're constantly trying to be enough mm -hmm. for those that are the ones that are, you know, that are older, that came before you. So now I'm very grateful that what I had to do to be enough was this which a lot of people 
have to do things that are very, could be very toxic, could be just very negative things. I'm, what I have to do is teach jujitsu, learn good technique, go help in a kid's class, go have a, a seven-year-old student when I'm 14 and teach him private classes, you know, three days a week. And maybe at 17, I didn't want to do that. Or at 14 years old, but big picture, looking back, like, I feel like I'm so blessed and I'm in the best position in the world, you know, in terms of my profession and my ability to help people and share jujitsu. And I'm so grateful that now look at, I have thousand plus students here at Gracie university that come in to learn that, which I was in many ways kind of, you know, pushed and semi forced and molded into doing but they're like, please give us more of what you know. So I'm very grateful for the, I like to say that I'm very grateful for the brainwashing that happened <laughs> as a kid. But let me ask you about this because many, and this is not necessarily jujitsu oriented or you specifically, but many, many do think that forcing kids into one specific thing is not a right thing to do. You know, they should have all these decision to make or power to make these decisions for themselves and you know regardless of the age they can make their choices blah 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 you're talking about the opposite side of the spectrum like i didn't have a choice one i was born into this family two this is a big family two three there, there's this jujitsu thing that is taking place and i really don't have any other option in life and now decades later you say this is the best thing that happened in your life yeah it, it appears to be a contradiction here is, it is, appears to right. me, yes. <laughs> and from what I understand, you're, uh, there was a time, you know, it could have been 50 years ago, 60 years ago, where if your father, you know, was, you know, worked with, he was a swordsmith, you became a swordsmith. Yeah. And you know, and if your father dealt with, you know, cattle, you deal with cattle. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that came from a place of like kind of continuing yeah. the the family business and that's for the family survival. And you have an advantage because you're seven years old, 10 years old, you're growing up learning that specific trade that your father knows. And so that's kind of like the, I fell under that category and being the oldest son, there's also this kind of like, I'm going to do my father, right. You know what I mean? And I'm going to do that, which my father wants me to do where I can imagine being the, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth son, sixth son, eighth son. <laughs> There's a little less like, oh, it's, it's kind of already being done. What dad wants to be done is being done by him. So there's a little bit more flexibility and a little less concern with doing that, which dad wants as you get down the line of children. So, yes, I feel extremely honored. Now, I can't because the, the intrinsic value you know, the, 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 how much jujitsu has given to me, I can't even begin to explain, right? Because there's people do, people have jobs all around the world that they enjoy one day a week or two days a week. They have jobs that are, you know, the different degrees, different levels of rewarding, like the, the reward that comes from doing what I do. And the enjoyment that I have, even going over the most basic, like teaching a beginner class to someone that knows nothing. It's someone's first day and they were in class yesterday. And how I, I'm so honored and so excited to teach them the simplest techniques 
and I'm so aware and I and I watch them. I watch the light bulb go off in their head. They're like they didn't know anything when they came in. And then there's a click where it's like, wow, look what I'm capable of. And I get to see that all the time. And that wouldn't have been possible if I was not influenced and guided and forced by the people who came before me. You are 100% right. That moment where, where you see that epiphany taking place, that, 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 that light bulb goes off. Matter of fact, last night, Gary and I, it, it, we, we had an introduction class here, and, and, and you know, a gentleman in his well, 40s or 50s, 40s. Least, yeah, yeah, 40s, came in and never done jiu-jitsu. He's a basketball player, and, and we were going through the motions, and there's the hesitance. There's this little insecurity on his face, and then as time goes on, 20 minutes later, big smile on his face. It was like, I didn't know I could do that. I thought this was physically impossible. And it's just so rewarding. It is so mind-blowing that you can impact somebody by simply sharing the knowledge and the, the experience on, yeah. on the mat. And, and helping people, right, like giving yourself, giving anything, giving water, food, support attention is giving to someone else like what is more special than giving because you're you're helping you're bringing more comfort more safety more security more health and this is like my father for example he's so much into giving his knowledge on the gracie diet right now mm-hmm. and that brings him so much joy to give because if one person every two weeks or every two months says, you know what? I adopted the advice that you gave. That's what keeps him alive. And listen, the part of the reason why my grandfather lived for as long as he did. And he lived as well as he did. I believe was because he gave as much as he did. Andy Gracie lived till 96 years old, if I'm not mistaken, 97. How is that even possible? It's because every moment, every person he met, he loved to give, whether it be a meal, a conversation, some jujitsu techniques, some advice on something even off the mat. So he gave so much and he was very lucky not only to be able to give, but to have the attention of so many people, especially people that were younger than him. Because when I was around my grandfather, I, I very much wanted to learn like, hey, grandpa, what do you have to say? Which is not very common, right? When someone's 79 years old, 85 years old, it's very easy for a young boy, young girl who's 16, 18, almost like, eh, you don't understand me. You know, it's something for you to give me. But fortunately, I, at a young age, as a teenager, especially like 16, 17, 18, in my 20s, I, I knew how much information, how much valuable information my grandfather had. And I was always very open to receiving his advice. And my father always talks about how he, as a kid, was open to receiving his father's advice. And that, that always was the case for myself and Henner uh, and for my other siblings as well. But for myself and Henner, especially, like, what can they give? And now I'm bringing this back. What can we take from these elders? 
So now bringing it back to why my grandfather lived so long and why I don't see myself ever not teaching jujitsu because selfishly, you know, my ability to give my knowledge and my time to someone else brings back so much to me in terms of fulfillment and filling my cup. Right. And that, and if you're not giving, it's, it's what probably one of the basic needs is to have purpose and to share with others. Then in that case, let me ask you, what was the biggest advice or the biggest impact that your grandfather made on you? But narrow down to one, <laughs> narrow down to this one individual story that to this day you remember. I remember my grandfather explaining to me, he said, Hiron, if somebody comes into my house when I'm sleeping or when I'm not home and, you know, comes in and attacks family, robs my family, harms someone in my family, and then leaves. And then the next day, my friends call me and say, hey, the guy who broke into your house and attacked your family, he's over here three minutes from where my grandfather lives, for example, he's down the street from your house. He said, he don't, I would not go after him. I would say, thank you so much and hang up the phone. I would not go after him. And he said, it's already the past. And I remember thinking like, man, like I remember believing him at this is, I was probably 18 years old. My biggest window of time spent when my grandfather was at 18 years old. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's, I actually believe him. It actually makes sense what he's saying. It might be difficult to control the urge to want to go and do harm to the person that harmed your family. But I believe you. And then the crazy part is that years, years later, I was just introduced to the, I was introduced to the book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And it talks about living in the moment. And this was probably like, Seven years later, my grandfather never read the book by Eckhart Tolle, the book of living in the moment. So I, I, I read the book and I love the book. But then as I read the book, I'm like, oh my gosh, my grandfather was already here. And it's just a reminder to us how, you know, you might read something amazing somewhere or learn something amazing somewhere, but that doesn't mean that other people weren't already applying that strategy. And, and this is this strategy of living in the moment has now like rolled over into my jujitsu. Like how I do jujitsu is so moment to moment. And I believe it's thanks to the conversations with my grandfather, as well as, you know, everything kind of being, you know, just double, you know, instilled into me. Um, in this, in, from the book that I read. So do you present moment jujitsu is, is this where keep it playful is sourcing from? Well, keep it playful was kind of came from a place to help, uh, facilitate present moment jujitsu. Yeah. Explain to those who don't know what keeping playful mean. What, what does that mean in your mind? What's, yeah. what, how is that? How do you define this? First of all, it's something that was very much attacked. And I got a lot of heat mm -hmm. from, from my family, from extended family members, and even other black belts in the community for using the term, keep it playful, 
around a sport and an art that is supposed to be so serious and so hardcore. Um, but the idea was that as a young child, we grew up and our grandfather used to, we would go spar at a jiu-jitsu school, for example. He would say, he don't lay on your back and allow them to side mount you, allow them to mount you and don't escape. You cannot escape, just defend. And I remember being at being underneath black belts and brown belts, purple belts. And I was probably a, a blue belt, purple belt at the time. And being under attack by these full grown men that were more advanced and more experienced than I was. And I wasn't able to escape. My grandfather knew he had a plan. He knew that one day I would be 19, 23, 25, and I would be able to do as I please physically. I was already six, two and a half, six, three, 190 pounds at 18 years old. I would be able to go and advance and attack people. That kind of comes naturally growing up in jujitsu. But what doesn't come naturally is the comfort that someone can have in the most inferior positions. So my, my grandfather forced me to practice those inferior positions. Now, as a young teacher, now this I, it became a point in my jujitsu where maybe I was 18 or 19, where I remember sparring with people that when I was 17, they would slice through me and tap me out, you know, five, six, seven times in five minutes. And then a year later, after a couple years of my grandfather's, you know, constant focus on survival and defense. I remember rolling with these guys and I would get to the point where I would tie one hand in my belt and they couldn't beat me. So my defense became so solid. And at that point, even though when I was younger, like 17, maybe 18, a little bit, 16, 17, I didn't want to do what he was suggesting. I was a little bit like, come on, let me just roll. But at the point of 18, it hit. And I said, oh, my goodness, this guy used to beat me six times in five minutes. Now he can't even beat me once. Matter of fact, I just beat him. So everything changed. Now, I have students when I'm not 21, 22, 23 years old, I see my students rolling. And when they end up in someone's guard or the bottom of the mount or side mount, the amount of effort and panic and fight to escape the twisting and the turning and don't be caught flat on your back type talk. They're always fighting to get out. And I realized that the students are doing that because they're trying to represent. They're, they want to be like, they want to show how good they are. So then I, I heard in a song one time, he said, it was it's a song said, keep it real. A couple of times in the song, I said, I keep it real. It's like a rap song or something. And when I heard that, I thought, man, people are trying to keep it real and like be badass on the mat. So then I thought, no, hold on. Because they are doing that amongst themselves, a bunch of purple belts, let's say, when I side mount the same purple belt, and I'm a black belt now, 21, 22 years old, he does the same thing with me. He twists and turns and panics. And then he gets tired and then he gets submitted. So then I thought, hold on, these purple belts 
need to take more of a playful approach amongst themselves. They cannot miss the opportunity to practice 30 seconds, 60 seconds of strictly observation and survival and defense. They have to do that before they try to escape with each other, because one day they will be controlled against their will. And they need to know that they can be safe when they're in these inferior positions. So I would push the story of guys, be a little more playful and put yourself in the inferior positions to increase your level of comfort and understanding so that when you get put there against your will, you'll be prepared. And I said it and I said it and slowly but surely I had students and friends and people from people from other states started to do this. And I started to meet people in their should be 20s and 30s that really took this advice and ran with it. And now, like I side mount sometimes a purple belt. And I, I believe myself to be very effective in, you know. Jiu-jitsu. <laughs> you you kind of know what you're talking about. Very humble. <laughs> I think I'm pretty good. Like, you know, like, you know, rest in peace, Leandro Lowe, right? You guys talked about him and his, you know, him being a legend and it being a tragedy that he had passed away. I never met him in person, but crazy at a young age to lose someone like that. Now, he is someone, for example, I never met in person, never rolled with him, but that's the kind of person that, the guy, eight-time, I believe, world champion. Mm-hmm. Like, when you roll with someone like that, you, you are under... I've never rolled with him, but just from the little clips and videos that I've seen and photos and just his whole energy, I could only imagine the level of boom, 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 of firepower and just amazingness that he could deliver to someone. And that's why he is an eight-time world champion. So. To be underneath somebody like that requires a tremendous level of practice. Now, I'm not, the, I'm not a competitor and an athlete like Leandro Lowe was by any means. But going back to, I still have a certain level of effectiveness to attack and to, you know, outsmart people. And I have been underneath people that I'm sorry, I've been on top of people that are purple belts and I haven't been able to tap them for, you know, for five minutes, sometimes six minutes, because they understand the level of survival and this, and now think about at the very high competitive level, Mm -hmm. if someone that is a very high level competitor is on top of you, such as Leandro Lowe, and I have never watched a lot of his matches, but when someone gets underneath him, there's probably this urgency to escape because he brings so much pressure and so much offense and he's so dangerous and so effective that you think I got to get out of here. But when you tell yourself, I got to get out of here, you're not in the mindset of, of defending yourself. You're in the mindset of, I cannot be here, Mm -hmm. which going back to what my grandfather taught us about being present The moment you land under somebody, any one of these world champion competitors that are around the world, when you land underneath them, what they expect you to do is to panic and go and try to get out 
And in many ways, that is what fuels and feeds them opportunity to either exhaust you or submit you or advance on you. What I'm suggesting is that when you land underneath somebody, when you land in an inferior position, the first thing you have to do when you land somewhere inferior is realize that there's nowhere else for you to be but right there. Now, if you're in a competition and there's only a five minute time limit, and there's only 30 seconds left, great. But let's not talk about that. Let's forget about that for now. The first thing when you land somewhere, you land in an inferior position, your first thought is, okay, there's nowhere else to be but right here, because right here is where I am. So I'm going to be right here. And that means I'm going to observe you and I'm going to neutralize your attacks. I'm going to defend your attacks. And I know how to defend your attacks because I've been practicing being right here for months, if not years. Now, while I'm also neutralizing your attacks and I'm being right here, what small things can I do to make your life uncomfortable, how can I complicate, not only neutralize your attacks, but how can I annoy you from the bottom? How can I be sticky? How can I hold on to you to slow down further attacks or prevent your advancements? So this is how I treat landing in an inferior position. And this is all thanks to the confidence that my gra- grandfather gave to me as a young child. And I continue to sharpen it. And I continue to share the message through Keep It Playful. Yeah. And, and I think what you're talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think what you're talking about is what many people t- define jiu-jitsu as being comfortable in uncomfortable positions. It, it essentially having this stress level and anxiety and adrenaline in these high stress positions doesn't allow us to make Mm -hmm. clear and intelligent decisions in order for us to remove ourselves, protect ourselves and remove ourselves from these positions. Yes. Do you think that kind of taking that topic and pivoting in something a little bit more serious, but do you think that's why a lot of law enforcement's of officers really need jujitsu to be comfortable in some of these, well, life-threatening and compromised positions? There is no doubt that people are uncomfortable in their skin when it comes to physical altercations mm-hmm. or even verbal because verbal can become physical. So people all around the world are uncomfortable. And a lot of those people become police officers. So there's no doubt that I feel like police officers are, that is one profession that is way undertrained in when it comes to hand to hand, the comfort and the, the closeness, right? The, the grapple and the closeness that a fight brings. And it, they, we talk about how, like, Henner often reminds us how, you know, hairstylists have to do, I don't know, 100 and 40 hours of hair before they get this level of graduation where police officers might do in the police Academy, they might do 20 hours Mm -hmm. or four hours. Yeah. So, you know, there's just something now, do they train a lot of, maybe they train more firearms. Police officers spend more time working on firearm skills than they do hand to hand you know, grappling jujitsu skills. Now things are changing. Police departments are figuring it out and they're putting their officers to do more training. They're creating partnerships with 
local jujitsu schools, especially jujitsu schools that offer, you know, a very structured, safe, you know, and a very practical curriculum. So things are changing, but I always felt like, you know what, like police officers, if they're not comfortable in that moment, they should not move forward to arrest the civilian. For example, they get into an argument, something happens, there's like a, there's a, there's a little car accident, a, a pile up, and they get to the car accident. And one of the guys that, you know, crash into somebody is maybe a little bit drunk and he says something very offensive to the police officer and the police officer takes it personal mm. and is now a little bit angry Escalates. at that, that person that is drunk. Maybe the police officer is angry because maybe they're, they had some kind of a history against out with alcohol and drunk driving, or maybe it's what the suspect, what the civilian said, but now the police officer is angry and they're afraid. And there's a lot of emotions around this, you know, this situation. I always felt like they should not be able to move forward and to do the arrest because they would be acting from a place of, I guess, past or future, right? They wouldn't be in the present moment because present moment is this person is drunk. They're going to say things that might be hurtful, that might offend me. That has nothing to do with me. They don't even know me. My past was my past. And right now I'm going to do my job and I'm going to arrest them so they don't hurt anybody else and they can pay for what they just caused right now. But it's very difficult because we are human beings and mm -hmm. it's difficult not to take personal and not to get emotional and get angry at the person that you're dealing with. But when you get emotional, you get angry is when you make mistakes. It's when you go too far. It's when you do more harm. It's when you use excessive force. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough it's a tough situation for for all of them and um yeah while the departments and i don't want to get in political here but you know a lot of while all these departments are making steps towards making this better for them let me ask you this how come a lot of the police officers don't take it upon themselves to learn jiu-jitsu i mean it's really not hard to find a jiu-jitsu academy these days we done this is not 20 decades two decades ago where like the nearest jiu-jitsu academy was four hours away today and every major city has many of them That's a great question. Why don't police officers take more steps on their own to go right. learn jiu-jitsu? We can start very basic with, we have to consider the police officer's schedule and their life. A lot of times officers drive an hour to work here, True. but they live an hour away. So when you say, hey, go do an hour jiu-jitsu, when? Before work or after work? And now it's a whole other hour of them being away from there. It's a two-hour process to get mm -hmm. home. And although it's very important, they have their families, they have their kids. So there, not to mention, there's a certain stress that exists as a police officer. It's a very high stress profession. Yeah. Everybody you deal with is trying to kind of come up on you and trick you and lie to you. You don't know who's good, who's bad, who's got a warrant out for their arrest, who doesn't. So police, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world. You're only called when there's a problem. Nobody calls a police officer yeah. and says, hey, you know. There's a celebration downtown, you know, come join us. No, you come downtown because a car ran through a crowd of people and killed nine people. So all they see is negativity and negativity. That's why it's very important, at, at least for me, and it's very easy for me because I work with police officers so much, to have an energy of, hello, you know, how are you guys? Good day with police officers where everyday people, kids, 
grow up afraid of police officers. My kids are like, now maybe I messed up because I said, guys, we want to wear our seatbelts to keep ourselves safe. Also, we can get a ticket if you don't wear a police, uh, uh, a seatbelt. So now the kids are afraid of getting a ticket. So they're a little bit afraid of police. And I'm like, no, I don't have to worry about it. That's Thomas over there. He's our friend. <laughs> so little by little, we grow up almost <clears throat> with cops. But now cops don't train, I believe, quite often, because I don't believe most jujitsu schools are safe enough for cops to train. And what I mean by safe enough is the kind of things that are necessary for a police officer to humble themselves, to come down and say, you know what, I'm going to learn how to fight. They, they have to, first of all, they have to acknowledge to themselves that they're underprepared. And to walk into a school that does not have a beginner curriculum, yeah. that only has, we just have jujitsu classes. What that means is they have white belts and blue and brown and black all mixed together. They learn jujitsu for 20 minutes, let's just say 30 minutes, which is pretty average, right? To learn for 20, 30 minutes and then roll for how long? 30, 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So for a police officer to join that, they're going to have to go through a fair amount of grind mm -hmm. before they figure it out. Now, why would a police officer who is, you know, had a hard time even saying, man, I am law enforcement. People look at, look to me to come and solve problems, arrest people, control people, protect people. Now here I am for a week, two weeks. How many times are they going to be able to spar with having very little, like a very kind of unorganized, you know, introduction to let's just say their first 10 lessons what are they learning they're learning a sweep from the butterfly guard and they're learning some chokes from behind somebody with a gi like why are they learning those things those things make no sense for them in their line of work number one and those things are not really helping them when they grapple against the other student it's a blue belt they're getting destroyed mm -hmm. so you can see how it's not safe and it's not even a good investment of their time it's not like they're showing up on day one and they're being told, hey, at most schools, they're not being told, hey, you know what? When you get on top of somebody in the mounted position, it's nice to know how to control somebody. Because if you don't know, you're going to do what comes natural. And that might be strike or grab them with your hands. And when you do those things, you're very tippable, mm -hmm. especially against somebody who's twisting and turning and bumping. So instead, we're going to teach you how to get low, apply hip pressure, anchor onto the person really widen your position so that when they go crazy, you can control them. And while they burn energy, you conserve energy and then they burn energy. And then maybe after a minute, they're so exhausted, you can then talk to them and then apply handcuffs. Nobody talks to classes like that because you only have one police officer or two out of 15, 20 students. So where are you going to focus your energy? And this is why Gracie University is so different because we don't, need to worry about catering to police officers in our everyday classes. Yeah. We cater to everyday people in our everyday classes. And an everyday person, just like a police officer, might end up underneath somebody in a headlock getting punched. So when we teach that to civilians and the police officer is in that class, 
he says, wow, I could see myself in a headlock getting punched. That's not impossible. Matter of fact, that happened to the, the, one of our officers was in a headlock and got beat up just last month, just like this. I can use this. And you know what? At the end of class, we're not even sparring, beating each other up. We're doing drills that connect all of today's techniques to help us better understand, you know, how to transition from one move to the other, how these moves might, you know, happen in real life, to learn how to read when you do this move versus that move, to read the indicator of each technique. So it becomes so, it's so real, it's so practical that that's why we can have a class with 75, 85 students here at Gracie University. And you could have easy 12 police officers in a class. And when one comes in to watch, he says, yep, this is the place for me. So jujitsu schools today, they're in this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. How much energy do you give to teaching your students to roll, to grapple and roll and just, you know, Ezekiel choke, butterfly guard sweep, X guard, past the guard, how much attention do you give to that versus how much attention do you give to hold control? Where can punches come from? Let's conserve energy, slow things down. Person wants to go fast. You go slow, you control. Now, listen, we, you and I, you guys, we know that grappling, even with zero consideration of punching and, you know, energy efficiency, the police officer who stays with it will still build so much more comfort in themselves and they'll learn how to move and how to use their body to control and submit and arrest people. We know it will happen and it's been happening, but I'm not talking about the one in 100 police officers that can make it through that type of training. I'm talking about the 99 yeah. That after three days, man, this is why am I doing this? This makes no sense for me. So your guys at school, for example, how much do you give a beginner program mm-hmm. only for beginners? Yeah. And that's amazing. That's do you agree that that's pretty rare? Yeah. No, listen, you bring up some very important points in this entire thing. It, it so is, do you agree it's rare, though? Oh, oh absolutely. absolutely. Perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if, I, when the world realizes that yeah. having classes for beginners, when the rest of the jiu-jitsu world realizes that, they will quickly, not only will they have more students, yeah. but they will get more police officers. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It, it's not only the police officer has a responsibility to reach out and train here, but I think the the academies or the facilities have even larger responsibility to provide the environment when these people one feel safe to come in and two feel safe to continue and provide mm-hmm. them with the skills that they really need right like you know if, if i don't know i don't want to give silly examples but like if i'm a if i'm a barber i, I don't need to learn how to use a hammer like it, it's you need to you're trying to learn a specific skill and if you don't provide that skill those people will leave or even yeah. worse they will get hurt and at that point, it just derails in a completely different different direction. I think, are we talking the difference between sport and, and self-defense? Um, um, fundamentals and sport? Um, yeah. Because, I, you, know, every, you know, we always talk about what we see on the internet. And it's funny, I, 
while you were talking, I hear you and your brother in my head remembering a police officer here in Chicago. Uh, there was three police officers in a train station trying to arrest somebody. And while I'm watching that video, I hear you guys. You're not break. I'm not watching you break it down, but I hear you in my head breaking mm -hmm. it down. And um, it's just like it's how they how do they not know how to mount somebody? You know, the person's flailing and kicking and they're trying to grab their ankles with their hands, yeah. you know, and it's just like, I don't, I don't understand why this isn't pushed. Um, not only safety for them, but for whoever they're arresting, which means that yeah. there's now a longevity in their career. Yeah. Um, everybody's going home safe. You know, everybody's going to make their court appearance. Um, and I just don't get why um, the, not the fundamentals of jujitsu, but just the fundamentals of controlling and de-escalating. Yeah. Why there isn't a priority. Know, on what that. you have to know is this. You have to know is that every police officer, they want to be better prepared. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed. So know that they all want it. Now, whether or not they're able to make that happen, right. Could be the budget of the department, could be their schedule, could be their own life finances. We don't know location, opportunity, culture, jujitsu culture, they all want to get better and they are trying. And you are right. It is easy to watch videos and say, man, man but we're on the outside, right? It's so much bigger than the police officer, right? right. And it's even so much bigger than the chief. It's just, it, it's so, it's, it's way above them. They're just doing that, which the city permits, that which the city requires, so, like I said, I'm optimistic. I believe it's changing. Our program is called Gracie Survival Tactics, GST, for military and law enforcement. And it's doing amazing. And the numbers speak for itself. It's just growing more courses all over the country, even different parts of the world. And this is just a sign that departments are finally saying, okay, we're going to send our guys. And they send two or three or four of their instructors to come to the course. And then they do a fair amount of training with us, 30 hours. They go back and then they teach at their department. And then not only do they teach their department, but they attempt to explain to the police officers in their department how they can go out and do what you guys are saying. Find a local school. Yeah. And all we hope and all their instructors hope is that they find a school that's a good vibe for them. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, I mean, it. Yeah, and I'll leave it at that. You're 100% right. And but but more importantly, I I do appreciate. I personally do appreciate everything you guys do because I think you guys are making a dent in the world and 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 without you it wouldn't start. And you guys are not only starting but also continuing phenomenal job with your programs. I love it. Um well, believe it or not, we've been at this for an hour. But before before we wrap this up, um what we do end of each episode is a guest who was sitting in your seat in the previous episode, asked a question. And Gary will take a lead on this. Um, the guest did not know that it's going to be you, and the question is quite interesting. So let's take a look. Yeah, so Todd Schaefer wants to know, and this is one of the silly ones, uh, what is your favorite guilty pleasure song to work out to or to train to? <laughs> so something you don't want to admit, but you have to. We're putting you on the spot. Um, like a song that you would be embarrassed, embarrassed yes. <laughs> at people knowing you like. Well, I would say I, I, I'm not embarrassed because I understand why. So like, for example, the song, um, uh, 
I think it's a Beyonce song, but it's not to work out to. It's also just anytime. I just appreciate hearing it. It's nostalgic. Uh, what's the song? Um, Crazy in Love, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's Crazy sure. in Love by Beyonce. So a song like that, it just, it, so it's not, a, I, when I work out, just so you know, when we do, when I do jujitsu or even work out in the gym, music is not important to me. I don't wear music when I go on a bike ride or I run. I don't listen to music, which we can talk about why after. But the song, um, I think Crazy in Love, I'm not embarrassed, but there was a girl a long time ago when I was a young kid in Brazil <laughs> that I hung out with that super cool experience, just hanging out with her. I remember she really liked the song. And so she played it a lot. So it just brings me back to the time where I was, I don't know how old I was, maybe, maybe 18, 19. So, and she was so cool and so tall and so pretty. And I'm like, man, I'm the man. <laughs> I'm glad Todd could bring back some good memories. Uh, there, for you go. there you go. So how come you don't listen to, music when you work out yeah listen i i have we go to the sand dunes here there's a huge hill of sand that we run sprints on and i could even send you a little video of you seeing it so you guys can see or when we work out jujitsu i think it's because when i'm really into the workout it's what i'm doing i my i can't even hear the song because I'm so present in the role. I'm rolling with someone. If I roll with Henner, Henner is a serious, serious case, a threat, very dangerous to roll with. When I roll with Henner, you could play any song in the world. And I won't, you ask me what song played, I had no idea because every ounce of me was laser. I had to be so focused on what he was doing. There was no bandwidth for anything else. If I think about, oh, <laughs> start singing the song boom i'm gonna get choked <laughs> so uh and in terms of working out I, I always felt like there's a certain like there's a certain dependency to the music where like okay it helps me run where i don't take pre-workout a like, hello pre-workout like energy boosting no i go from zero i get up out of bed and if i'm gonna go work out in the gym a little bit which i do very rare i'm gonna go run or ride a bike i just do it. And the bike itself is the music and it is the pre-workout. And if, because of that, I only go for, you know, 13 miles and not 23 miles. Great. But I'm a hundred percent doing what I can in that moment. There's no external, you know, you can't be, hours, you can't be present. Me. You can't be present if all that other stuff is in your, in your ears or in your brain. Right? I can't be present. I hear every car, I ride my bike, every car, every person. I'm not like, singing the song humming the beyonce tunes no 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 i'm laser focused yeah i used to ride my bike to work in the in the city we're outside of chicago and i used to live in the city and i would ride my bike and when i first started doing it i had my headphones in all the time uh and it only took a couple cars getting really close and not knowing because you can't hear them coming up on you where i was like no more no no i gotta i gotta be aware of everything you know There you go. Speaking of keeping you playful, how often do you train with your brother? Not very often. Uh, It's a little bit boring to train with him because I'm so focused on survival. I would say (laughs) he's a a little bit more go, go, go than I am, if you can't already tell. So it it ends up becoming like, you know, 70, 80% of the time. He's like, and I'm just like, boom, boom, trying. So not too much. Um, 
I would say months can go by and we don't roll, but it's okay. I don't miss it too much. There's a lot of other really tough guys <laughs> and, you know, very, very rare. Um, but he's here all the time. We can teach together quite often. Yeah. And if we do roll, the funny part about rolling is that most people want to roll, like just they shake hands and they do a 10 minute round. The type of rolling that might be more enjoyable for him and I is very positional. So like he'll be side control on me and he'll try to mount me. That's his whole objective. Mm. And mine is to stop him from mounting. And these type of small like, positional drills, I feel like are, are very important to kind of sharpening the sword and just creating comfort in every position. And most people want to avoid the type of rolling because they don't want to reverse and yeah. then be the one on the bottom the next go. Whereas him and I, like, if there's one thing that we pride ourselves in is that there is no position that we try to avoid. Zero. Do you, do you guys agree on that ahead of time? Or is it like, hey, listen, let's go side control. You tap your bottom bum and you guys are working? Or is it more natural and kind of you find yourself no, no. in these positions? We, we will do side control drills uh-huh. and we'll roll. So when you say, do we agree? Do you mean do we agree on the fact that we'll do like a side mount sparring? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like positional. positional. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's agreed on for sure. Yeah. yeah. And we can have a couple other handful of black belts that might join us. And we'll do like some just session of like, alternating whoever's in the top or on the bottom, we just keep switching. No doubt. But it's that, that, that the mindset of no matter what position I'm in, it's okay. Everything's okay. I want to be right here. I got this is possible because of those positional drills. Yeah. You do it so much that eventually you just, you're familiar and you're comfortable. And, and that's, I guess, my advice to anybody who wants to get good at jujitsu and it's training, wherever you are struggling, whatever position is uncomfortable, that's a little bit annoying for you, whatever it is, spend more time there and spend more time there at different depths. So sometimes, like, let's say it's guard. You don't like being people's closed guard. Go in the closed guard. And then go in the closed guard and let their leg go near your neck for the triangle. Let their hand go in your collar for a cross choke. So play different types of closed guard so that you can learn the small intricacies of how to defend and how to stay safe. Mind-blowing. Good stuff. Mind-blowing. Thanks for being here. Before you depart, where can people find you? I think you're like the most accessible person in the world, <laughs> but or the easiest Man. to find. But where can people find you? Let's, uh, let's talk about that briefly. Um, Come to Torrance, come to Torrance, come visit Gracie University and come to a class and mention this podcast and we'll just have a, you can have a free class if you come visit there and is. you mention this podcast. But you can, right. you know, I'm going to Google media, United like, Airlines as soon as we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can trust that that free class will be a safe free class. If I roll with you and you're a blue belt, I won't tap you out nine times. No, I'll tap you once or twice and then I'll let you side mount me a little bit. And it's gonna, you're going to leave saying, wow, what a pleasant experience. That matters to us. So yeah, come to Gracie University. Go to gracieuniversity.com. And we have some lessons that are out there for free for people. You can learn more from us online. And then you can go to you know Instagram and Twitters and all those things. Just heat on Gracie. Heat on Gracie. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks for being here. Obviously, we'll include all the links in the, in the show notes. Uh, we do appreciate you being here. A lot of wisdom, a lot of good stories, a lot of great time. Um, 
Thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate it. We appreciate everything you guys are doing out there. So thank you. Peace. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Raw Radio. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave us a review and help us make the show even more amazing. For future episodes, check out our website and follow us on all major podcast platforms. Take care. Thank you.